Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. Tom Bernard Show with co-host Catherine Brandt. Andy Rapp Bernard. Mike Bolina, special guest. I'm Eric Rivenis. And Rothkoy Bash MD Hackmaster. And we'll be right back. Kick off Hour 2, Tom Bernard Show. Walzer Automotive Group started in Minnesota over 60 years ago. Most people know something about the Walzer way. Upfront, no haggle pricing, work with one person from start to finish, or the free lifetime powertrain warranty on most vehicles sold in Minnesota. What you might not know is they are the only automotive group that is a member of the Keystone Club. They join such great Minnesota companies as General Mills, Target, Cargill, the Twins, Wolves, and Vikings in pledging 5% pre-tax profits to local charities. It's a great example of their core values. Do the right thing, display positive energy, be open-minded, and lead by example. So if you're in the market for a new or used car, check out walzer.com or stop into one of their dealerships. Please don't say, tell them Tommy sent you, because it sounds fake and I hate it. Walzer Automotive Group. Walzer.com. Michael Bryant, Brad, Sean Bryant, what's the latest? Well, basically, we're trying to represent people who have been hurt then talk to them before they talk to an adjuster. Uh, one of the key points is to make sure you know what your rights are before you start talking to the insurance company and they start asking you questions or they try to settle your case early and cheap. Well, what's interesting to me is, you know, a lot of people have fear of attorneys. It makes them very uncomfortable. They get nervous about it. What should I do? I've known Michael for years and years now, and I would highly recommend you. So that should be good enough for everybody because I don't endorse people who are dirtbags. Well, I, I appreciate that. Um, but I guess the key is is people think I'll charge them if I talk to them. Right. So a lot of people call me up. It's like, how much is this going to cost if you call me back? Like, you want me to call you back? How much will that cost? I don't charge people. The only way I get paid is if we recover, um, if we get money from the, the other side. And there's a lot of people I talk to that I never get paid for that are just part of giving them advice to make sure they know what they can do and what their rights are. And your record's terrific as well, we should point out. Well, it works. It's been good. <laughs> it's been good, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> it's been good. And how do they contact you? At, uh, e- either through our website, which is minnesotapersonalinjury.com, minnesotapersonalinjury.com, or at 800-770-7008. Michael Bryant, Bradshaw, and Bryant. Good times. What makes them a good times, Molina? Oh, this is uh, We Are Family. Oh, I thought it was good times. These are the good times. Well, they're the exact same yeah, song. Yeah, they're kind of yeah. the same song. <laughs> I mean, it's the exact same song. We are, we are. 
Why are you playing We Are Family? Uh, siblings Day. Uh, that's true, it is Siblings Day. Ladies and gentlemen, Eric Rivenis talking about the book Dirty Doc Ames. Well, no, Eric, you can't get We already have Dirty Doc Basham. There you so. go. <laughs> right. <laughs> he goes, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, Dirty Doc Ames and the scandal that shook Minneapolis, the story of a mayor and his police department run amok and of the stunning political collapse that helped launch the progressive era, the story of Albert Alonzo Doc Ames is perhaps the greatest political scandal in Minnesota history. As mayor of Minneapolis, Ames exposed the city to national humiliation, helped jumpstart an era of reform. So it's his fault that Minnesota's nuts. <laughs> it, it was a temporary era of reform. Uh, Kid Can would eventually move in, and uh, the Jewish gangster syndicate. That's what I and, thought. Yeah, it would all go downhill again one more time. That's yeah. pretty amazing. Uh, tell me the story of Dirty Doc Ames. This stuff fascinates me. Oh my goodness! It's such a it's such an epic story, and it, it was really hard to get it into this this book. I had limitations as to how much I could actually write, but I mean, this guy was a was was quite a character. I mean, he he was a politician for 25 years. He started as a Republican, switched switched to the Democratic Party, then became a populist, then became an independent, and then finally somehow weaseled his way back into the Republican Party for his final fourth <laughs> term as mayor. And oh it was God. this epic rise and fall of this this guy who was just so narcissistic, so arrogant. On one hand, had incredible political ambitions. But at the same note, he, he was a, a medical doctor and he was, was some say he was one of the, the, the best surgeons in Minnesota. And he... Um, donated his, his medical time for free. Um, he, he saw patients that couldn't afford to pay, and he was able to build up this base of followers based on that. Um, they were called the Dinner, Dinner Pail Brigade, this group of followers who would follow him to, to hell and back. And he used that, that following to, to get, his, get himself into his final term as mayor of Minneapolis in 1901. Uh, he took advantage of something called, um, well, the Minnesota legislature passed a, a a direct primary law, which basically said, finally, ringsters, um, old-time Tammany Hall-style politicians cannot control Republican and Democratic, you know, endorsements. The primaries are open to everyone. So he took his following, and um, the Republican Party was not very happy about this, <laughs> but he he ran and he actually um, be, he actually got the endorsement as as the Republican candidate for mayor in 1900, and then he went in. He proceeded to fire half of the police force. He filled them with criminals, with people who had supported him, um, gave them all plum positions, and then proceeded in the next year and a half to to make as much money as he possibly could um, before he was finally taken down. No, somebody that was greedy? Hard to believe. I've never heard of that before. God. Yeah. Uh, this is a fascinating story. Yeah, I have to ask you a question. This this is not directly related to your story, but I suppose in a way it, it may be. Uh, and, and then somebody did ask me a question. Joe uh, asked me the question, did he just say Jewish mobster? Yes, the organized crime in Minnesota was not Italian. It was Jewish. And a guy named Kid Can Blumenfeld was uh, the man who ran the whole show. Actually, Bugsy Siegel spent a lot of time in Minnesota mm -hmm. because of Kid Can. People don't know that. They don't know that that's the truth. 
Right, exactly. Yeah, and he would come in the 1920s and 30s. And he, yeah, the, the, Jewish, the Jewish mob ran Minneapolis, and the, yep. the Irish ran, you know, St. Paul, basically. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they ran St. Paul. That's exactly right. But I, I have to ask you a question because you look, you know, very knowledgeable of politics. I was born in Long Prairie, Minnesota. I grew up in Minneapolis, Minnesota, mostly on the north side. What is it about Minnesotans? Why are we so different from the rest of the country that we're not just Democrats, we're Democrat farmer laborers? We're not just Republicans, we're independent Republicans. Why do we have to be different than everybody else out there? Why is that with Minnesota? What is that? Well, I think from what I remember, and that's a really good question, um, I think the ind- people, I, I think that the GOP became independent Republicans because the Democrats became the Democratic Farmer Labor Party and they wanted their own right. their own unique identity as well. But yeah, the DFL is basically a combination of two parties, the Farmer Labor Party and the Democratic Party that, that finally combined right. and joined forces. Yeah. But every place else, they're Republicans and they're Democrats. Nope, not in Minnesota, they're not. No, 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 no. <laughs> I guess we Actually, like to be special, yeah. Well, with, with the hist- we do like to be special. With the history of 12-step recovery in uh, Minnesota, they should have been the dependent Republicans, rather than independent, the dependent Republicans. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> or codependent That's a good Republicans. Idea. <laughs> we had Minnesota uh, was one of the few states, I suppose if you dug deeper, you would find out we wouldn't be one of the few states, but we were one of the few states who had a card-carrying communist as a governor, governor that Floyd B. Olson was a communist. And people, I don't think, realize that. That um, all the way back then, and that was that was just after this era you're talking about, wasn't it? Wasn't he governor just after 1900? Yeah, yeah, in the, in the 1930s, um, he he helped. 1930s, um, yeah. yeah, during the Minnesota or the, the the infamous Minneapolis truck strike in 1935. Right, and just before, he died of cancer, um, but there were rumors that he was going to be um, FDR's vice presidential uh, candidate. Right, um, but then he died, and of course. Then he died, unfortunately. Yeah. But they still have a statue there on Highway 55, Olson Highway. <laughs> Back when I was at the He's University of Minnesota, eye. yeah, um, I took a history class taught by High Berman, I think his name was. I don't know if you... you High Berman, sure, yeah. I know High Berman. And he, he said that Floyd B. Olson was a, was a big-time partier and carouser and had a cabin up north. No! Yeah, I, I remember that distinctly. <laughs> yeah, he, he definitely liked um, to let loose, for sure. So, so Dirty Doc Ames and the scandal that shook Minneapolis. What was the first year that he was mayor of Minneapolis? He was first uh, mayor of Minneapolis in 1876. Um, he, he was mayor for th- 25 years? Yeah, f- four terms, 1876, oh 1884. 1886, he almost became governor. He, he was like a half a percentage point uh, away from becoming governor. Really? Yeah, I mean, he was... He, He's, he's a really, really complicated character, a really, really fascinating guy. I mean, it's like a du- dual personality. He was so compassionate to the poor on one hand, but then he was so politically ambitious and so full of himself, almost to the point of delusion, you know? Um, it, it's, he had a really interesting love-hate relationship with the press. And, and when he, we, he became mayor in 1901 for this final fourth term, he surrounded himself with the the biggest bunch of idiots and criminals. I mean, you can imagine. 
one, he, he chose as, as, captain, as a captain of a police, a guy by the name of Coffee John Fichette. Uh, and Coffee John Fichette owned um, and operated a restaurant called uh, Coffee John's Oyster Grotto on Nicollet Avenue. And he was, he was, um, he had been, um, his head had been injured um, by some, um, sh- um, some shrapnel during the Civil War. And he, Ooh. yeah, he had this crazy swing, I mean, as far as his temperament goes. And whenever anyone complained about the food in his restaurant, I mean, he would, like, beat them on the streets of Minneapolis. <laughs> he would chase after them. <laughs> At one point, he, somebody said, refused to pay or, or didn't want to pay for, for um, something that they, had, that they had ordered. And he, he and his wife locked them in the restaurant and wouldn't let them out until they paid. But he was the, the captain of police, and, and he had no police experience. I mean, he, just one of these guys that, that were in, in um, Doc Ames' inner circle. And his job was to sell police positions. So if, if, a, police op- if a guy wanted to be a cop on the police force, um, they came to him. They had to pay him $200, I believe, and he would pass that on to Doc Ames. Doc Ames, and so they, so guys that wanted to be on the force actually had to, to pay. And $200 is a lot of money in 1901. When the average oh, yeah. salary for a for an officer, I think, was about a thousand dollars a year, so that's a substantial amount of money that they were, and that was just one way that they were making money. They were in collusion with with uh, gamblers. Um, they were inviting gamblers, professional gamblers, all from across the country, the best gamblers, to come into town and to set up con games, where they would fleece rubes suckers from that were coming in from out of town, and then they would split the money with with. Um, Doc Ames, his brother, his brother was the chief of police. <laughs> if that's right, not if that's right. not nepotism, I don't know what is, you know. And he was a disgraced uh, officer um, of the 13th Minnesota, um, supposedly disgraced. I, I think I prove in the book that he wasn't he wasn't the coward that people made him out to be, but he was part of the famed 13th Minnesota during the Spanish American War that stormed the the uh, town of Manila and and b- when we basically took. Um, the Philippines back from the Spanish and then started fighting the Filipino insurgents. So his, his brother was the, the chief of police and he was this um, vacillating kind of weak, weak-willed character that, that had no business running a police department. So it's just this crazy cast of characters that he surrounds himself with that, and everything just implodes, you know. And, and Doc Ames eventually goes on the run. He becomes a fugitive. <laughs> so, so part yeah, of the book is... Yeah, part of the book is just is, is following his, his escapades and the, the county sheriff's department sent deputies after him and were chasing him around and it's just nuts. When did the big milling era in Minnesota start? Wasn't that was that in the mid eighteen hundreds? Yeah, yeah, that was. So, ha- yep, the, the last half yeah, of the nineteenth century. Yeah. So, right, right, right after. That's what I thought. Right after Minnesota became a state. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Became, became it, a so state. really, this, this was all going on where Minnesota or Minneapolis, Minnesota, was all sort of Wild West kind of thing. All these things were just starting right. here. There was not a huge population. Right. Exactly. Yeah, and in Doc there, Ames, there was tons of them. Doc Ames came with his family when he was just a boy. He was one of the first 12 families in what is now Minneapolis. So he saw Minneapolis from the very, very beginning. He, he came in uh, the early, early 1850s when there was like no one here, and Minneapolis was a tiny village. Yeah. Where did he come from? From Garden Prairie, Illinois. His, his father was... Oh, do- from Illinois. Yeah, his father was Dr. Alfred Elisha Ames, who was actually worked for Stephen Douglas 
who was the the famed um, um, senator God. from Illinois that that had the, the you know the the Lincoln Douglas debates of course are famous now so. His father had been a, a longtime uh, Democrat, and he became a Republican. But he, he kind of swayed with the with the breeze, you know. He he only became a, a a Democrat because the Republicans didn't didn't want to give him the endorsement for his his first <laughs> term as mayor. So the Democrats were like, "Hey, you're pop, you're a popular guy. Come on over here," you know. <laughs> so. So yeah. did did they did these people all arrive in Minnesota at about the same time because. Uh, the lumber industry, the milling industry, uh, you know, the growth of wheat. The Mississippi was right there. To this day, if you go down the Mississippi, Catherine and I took a trip down the Mississippi on a, on a riverboat, uh, what, a year and a half ago now? Something like that. Oh, that's cool. And you do realize Mississippi River is owned by the Cargills. Oh. I mean, it's unbelievable. Uh, so, did they did they anticipate all this with the, with the milling and the the farming and the lumber and all the that this was going to be because of the Mississippi River? This was going to be a very very wealthy port, a very wealthy city, Paris cities, whatever. No, right away they didn't. But I mean, St. Anthony Falls when they first arrived was considered one of the one of the great wonders natural wonders of the united states of america it was absolutely gorgeous oh, really? yeah and there was a little a little island called spirit island that sat just below the falls yeah. that was um you know uh, that the native americans considered a sacred site and not long after they came you know um like we were talking about 1860s 1870s they started to to, to get that saint anthony falls and turn it into this you know, it started building sawmills and gristmills all around the area right. and, and just completely transformed it. Yeah. And destroyed it, basically. Destroyed it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and Pillsbury, the Pillsbury's made their fortunes, you know, here. Oh, and, yeah. And a Pillsbury actually ran against Doc and beat him um, after a second term. So the Pillsbury's are part of this, this story, too. We will be right back more with Eric Rivenis right after this Tom Bernard show. This is Tom for Flo. For the past 35 years, Flo's passion to invent a better way has created some of the finest recreational products available. Flo's Cargo Max trailer line is a perfect example of their innovation. This trailer is redefining the utility trailer industry. They start with a strong aluminum frame and then add a thermoform polymer bed. It gives you a nearly indestructible one-piece trailer body. And since it's molded, it adds style that the trailer industry has never seen. They even beat it with a large sledgehammer at 20 below zero to prove how tough it is. Best of all, you'll never worry about dents, rust, rot, or paint. Visit their website at floeintl.com to find your local dealer and to see videos of this unique trailer, including a video showing hockey star Ryan Suter shooting pucks at it trying to break it. You'll quickly see how Flow has earned the reputation for quality products and offering you more for your money. Flow. A better way. It's Tom telling you how easy it's been for me to lose weight on the Nutramost weight loss plan. I've started up another round at the new Nutramost Plymouth location, and those unwanted pounds are going fast. I've lost over 34 pounds. Nutramost is so easy, and they guarantee that you'll lose 20 pounds or more in just 40 days. There's no exercise, shots, drugs, prepackaged food, and I'm never hungry. Nutramost has helped me change my life, and I know they can help you too. Nutramost of Plymouth is hosting a second free informational dinner. Learn how to have success losing weight just like me. Neil Sheehy, Nutramost client and owner who played nine years in the NHL and is an agent to some of the NHL's current top players, will be at the dinner, and so will I, actually. 
It's Monday, April 30th, 6 p.m. at Jake City Grill in Plymouth, located around the corner from Nutramost. Just off Highway 55 and 494, space is limited. Call 763-333-7337 to register. That's 763-333-7337. He's not selling any alibis As you stare into the vacuum of his eyes And say, do you want to make a Dirty Doc Ames and the Scandal that Shook Minneapolis, the name of the book. Eric Riven is with us, ladies and gentlemen, talking about the beginnings of what Minneapolis-St. Paul has become. Well, Minneapolis in this case, but as you said, Jewish mobsters in Minneapolis, Irish mobsters in St. Paul. So, <laughs> But it was, yeah, pretty much all based on the fact that the mighty Mississippi River, pretty much uh, where it becomes very powerful, I suppose. it's It's kind of a... It's interesting to follow the Mississippi River north because uh, obviously the further north you get, the smaller it gets. And so you do realize how powerful it is by the time it gets down to the Twin Cities and from there delivering goods all around the world, actually. Absolutely, It's, it's yeah. a pretty amazing river. And it was up near Bemidji so, where it starts. That That's where all the, the, the lumber was being cut during this time. Yeah. But, right. Yeah. But, but, but before that, the lumber was all being cut in northern Wisconsin. So so much of this. So it, it, I believe at the time of, of this this time, Eau Claire, Wisconsin, was about what may have been bigger than Minneapolis, and that this and that this was the transition from the lumber industry yeah. to the grain industry, and that's why Minneapolis grew. And everybody, and everybody thought that would never happen, but many, uh, Eau Claire was the big thing, and that's where the Cornings were, because uh, Corning University, the Corning, uh, Wisconsin, that's all that family that uh, were the big lumber barons there. So that and that was early, but that was that was in the that was the early part of the 19th century, rather than the latter part of the 19th century. That makes sense. Yeah, right, right. at the turn of the century, it was it was uh, Shevlin. I, I don't know if you know the town of Shevlin, which is near Bemidji, but okay. the Shevlin Lumber Company was okay. one of the biggest yeah. lumber companies. Yeah. But did they send that stuff down here? They, was it milled in with the logs brought down on the river? Um, well, I mean, yeah, Minnesota. The, the the this was more of a, a flour. Okay. A, right. A, yeah. Yeah. The St. Anthony Falls is, is where the, the flour mills mm-hmm. were. Yeah, yeah. No, they, The I, Mill City. Right. Do people even know that it used to be called the Mill City back in the day? But they probably don't even know that any longer. Well, I mean, there's a great museum called the Mill City Museum that we have in Minneapolis right. now. And, I mean, right. it's an amazing museum run by the Minnesota Historical Society. And, and you can go and you can actually read all about, you know, that... that amazing area of, of, of Minneapolis, like the birthplace of Minneapolis, really, that, that, that area. Yeah, right along Yeah, Anthony it's Falls. fantastic stuff. Yeah. Even the baseball team is called the Minneapolis Millers. The yeah, Saint they Paul were. The Saints and the Minneapolis Millers. Yeah, it's true. Um, how old was, was Doc Ames when he, when he first got to Minnesota? Oh, he was born in 19, um, or sorry, 1842. He, he got here in, in, um, 1851, so I guess about nine years oh, old. Nine years old. Yeah. So he's nine years old. He got here, and his family family came here for what reason? I think his his dad was very. Um, his father thought thought that that the prospects for this this new town were pretty <laughs> were, were pretty good. Yeah. You know, I think he kind of wanted yeah. to be a big big fish in a small small pond, and that's what happened. I mean. Their first house is right where the U.S. Bank Stadium is right now. I mean, they they were literally oh, really? when Minneapolis 
when when settlement opened west of the the Mississippi, they were one of the first families to to build their houses, you know, right in that area. That's that's where those original um, homesteads were. Right, right so in that area. Did he learn his? Did he learn his trickery from his father? From any? From all of his family? Where did he learn to be such a? Because it, it seems like he was a pretty bright man. He was a bright man, and he was he was born with a, a silver spoon in his mouth. I mean, his dad, his dad worked really, really hard. You know, uh, grew up in a real poor family, and came to Minneapolis, started buying real estate. You know, I mean, the family was was rich by the time Doc Ames, you know, was a young man. He was he, he was a guy that was that didn't do well in school um, academically, but he did really, really well. Um, uh, socially, and he did really well um, um, athletically. And but I think he knew right from the start that he wanted to follow in his father's footsteps, and he wanted to become a doctor. So he studied under under his his dad, basically apprenticed under his dad. And then back then, to graduate from um, medical school, um, you basically did most of your time just apprenticing under another doctor. And then the last the last few months, you would go to the actual medical school and take a few classes, and then you'd get your degree. So he went to Rush, Rush College. And then right after that, um, it was the, the, Dakota, the Dakota War, you know, and he, regiments were being raised, and he joined um, as a private in the Army. Um, he, he joined the, the ninth and then transferred to the 7th, and he rose from private to assistant surgeon to surgeon of the ninth Minnesota and he, he served throughout the, the Dakota War and the Civil War and he was a surgeon by the age of 22 <laughs> pretty pretty astounding rise and um, yeah yeah absolutely. that really emboldened him he, he got he got married and then they took a break and they went to the West Coast and he became a went into the uh, newspaper business for a while he became editor of, of newspapers um, along the West Coast, California, and Oregon. And then is when his, his dad was, was finally um, um, really, really ill and on his deathbed, um, he came back and um, settled down here, took over, basically took over his dad's uh, medical practice, and then jumped right into politics. But I think something changed um, after his dad died. He seemed, he, he, there, there's not a lot of information on, on this. He wrote no memoirs. There, there are no papers, you know, books written specifically about him. I mean, I had to dig through court transcripts and newspaper accounts to try to piece together his life. And I'm not sure. Really? Yes, yeah. So there's, there's not a lot of information. But, I mean, there is, but you really have to dig hard for it. But um, I think something changed in him uh, after his dad died. He, 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 was always, he, he n- didn't believe it. His dad was very religious. His family was very religious. After his dad died, he had wanted nothing to do with religion. Um, he spent a lot of his time, even in 1876, as mayor f- for in his first term, out carousing, uh, visiting brothels. <laughs> um, oh, God. Yeah, yeah, gambling, um, drinking at saloons uh, all hours of the night. And um, he, he would later explain that he drank a lot be- to, because he had um, developed chronic dysentery from the Civil War. And he was constantly Ooh. in pain. He had liver issues. He had kidney issues. So he was constantly in, in, in pain, just suffering. At least, at least this is what he said later in his trial. But, um, and, and he used drinking to kind of numb that pain. Uh, but, I mean, with, with all this, this chronic pain that he was dealing with, he, it just, his ambition was just unbelievable, you know? He, he, he really had this, this mentality that, that 
whatever he set out to do, he was gonna he was gonna do it. And more times he f- he failed way more times than he succeeded. Most most of the time he ran for office, he he failed. But by 1886, um, when he ran for governor, um, he in almost became governor. He was um, one of the most popular men in Minnesota. I mean, he he had incredible popularity amongst the working class. And what caused that? He just spoke for the working class. That's why they liked them. Yeah, he did. He did. Uh, people, he he he. He embraced the fact that he was ri- he was not rich. He he sold that as as how he he could connect to to the, the the little guy you know to the to the regular laborer, and he always he always was happy to give a big you know middle finger up to to um, guys like Pillsbury and you know the the industry leaders that were making a lot of money in here in here in Minneapolis. I mean, he had friends in low places. He really did, um, and again, a lot of this was due to the fact that he would give, give his medical, you know, give his medical expertise away for free. Anyone who had any sort of a problem would come to him, and he would he would treat them for free. But this was a very calculated move as well, and he admitted this later on. That he, I think he said something like, "Every every time I I give someone, I treat someone for free, I have a vote for one year." <laughs> That's so, true. so, so yeah. his his medical, yeah, his medical practice fed his political ambitions. Yeah, but but you but you said you it said that, that he embraced the fact that he was poor, but he wasn't poor because he was rich. He what he, he wasn't was, rich. His dad it was rich, but, but he, he didn't you didn't benefit from that. He was not a beneficiary. He he was a beneficiary. The the the, uh, the research is a little hazy on this, but he I think I think what happened is he spent money oh. really really quickly. Um, I couldn't find any any records of him actually owning real estate anywhere. Oh, okay. He would move huh. from apartment to apartment and and uh, from house to house. At, at at one point, he was living in his medical practice when he he got into this big family fight oh. with his daughter and his oh, oh and and this oh and these these um, this family battle that he went through in the late in the um, early 1890s is just unbelievable and really paints him as a horrible horrible character he was estranged from his entire family he his poor his poor wife sarah strout um he he was fighting her and and uh, a lot of people said that she uh, in 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 uh, a court um because he wanted the the family furniture and um there was this protracted court battle he didn't care he he wanted to to make her suffer as 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 badly as he possibly could, and, and she died. And she died in the middle of this. Um, she suffered uh. a, a nervous breakdown, and 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 she died. And he won, and he got he got remarried like a month after. And <laughs> oh, it's just crazy. This is like it's 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 a not only is this a political scandal, but this is a fam- This is a book about a family scandal as well. So, so. Pol- politics haven't changed. <laughs> <laughs> no. Huh. Yeah. Pretty much true. I should mention, by the way, Thursday, April 12th, this Thursday at 7 p.m., a book launch for Dirty Doc Ames and the scandal that shook Minneapolis, Eric Rivenis. Uh, Thursday, April 12th at 7 p.m., book launch and author talk with Eric Rivenis at the Mill City Museum in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Exactly. Right where it all I started. Like it. Yeah. Right where it all started. Free and open to the public. There's a cash bar, but uh, free and open to the public. And then on Sunday, April 22nd, Fireside Chat with Eric Rivenis, Hennepin History Museum in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Free with museum admission, as a matter of fact. To RSVP, visit hennepinhistory.org. So you have a uh, 
a nice uh, meeting on April 12th, just a couple of days away at 7 p.m. And then on the 22nd uh, at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, that's that's a Sunday. So you've got, uh, you're have got you going to be a very busy guy in the very near future, it sounds like. I am, yeah, yeah. I have something set up with the Minneapolis Library, and we're setting up some, some book events at some bookstores, too. Yeah. Where did you, how did you... How did the name Dirty Doc Ames first appear to you? How did you know about him? Did you just study Minnesota history, Minneapolis history? Oh, that's a great question. Um, back in the, the mid-90s, I'm, I'm 47 now, but back in the mid-90s, um, right out of college, I, I started the um, original St. Paul Gangster Tours, um, which oh, you yeah. might have heard of. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and now the you go to the caves and everything, right? Yeah, the, the Wabasha Street Caves eventually bought, bought the yep. business from me, and they're, and they're still running it now. But I... I yeah, I was. I dressed up as Babyface Nelson. I've kind of I have a kind of a cherubic face, and <laughs> I bought a, a replica Thompson submachine gun and got into all sorts of trouble for for a few years. Um, uh, yeah, got pulled over by the police on a motor coach and um, almost almost uh, got taken out by Bill Clinton's secret secret service at the St. Paul Hotel. Ooh. Lots of crazy stuff. But w- w- what after researching the St. Paul tour, I decided I wanted to do a Minneapolis tour too, a comparable Minneapolis tour. And, and I, okay. I, I came across Doc Ames. It, it was a really, really big story back then. Um, there was a muckraking journalist by the name of Lincoln Steffens um, who was one of the first event, investigative journalists in, in America. And he wrote... Um, um, a series of exposés in McClure's magazine. And one of them that he wrote was called um, The Shame of Minneapolis. And this is like, this is like the go-to document for, for people, you know, doing research on Doc Ames. Um, and it's a sen- sensational article that he wrote that just, bring, just brought humiliation, complete humiliation to the state of Minnesota. I mean, this was the most popular issue ever of McClure's magazine. This particular issue with this article the shame of minneapolis and um so yeah I, I had seen that that shame of minneapolis around before and i and i i included that in the, the minneapolis tour that i was running at that time well somebody i'm sure 50 years from now will look back on some of the mayors we've had recently and go oh my god <laughs> they really did what they did huh that's pretty amazing yeah um basically the it's very upsetting but you look at what's happened in the city of Minneapolis. When I was a little boy living just a block north of Plymouth Avenue, 10 years old, I would walk from basically Bryant and Plymouth Avenue. I would walk down 7th Street downtown, go to a movie on Hennepin Avenue, and then go back home, and nobody ever bothered me. Try doing that today, see how it works. (laughs) You know what I mean? Sure. Uh, It's changed quite a bit, and, and they're trying to force things in the city of Minneapolis I'm not too wild about. It's become a very dangerous city, which embarrasses me, because I love the city of Minneapolis. But uh, we'll be right back. You, uh, you said you, you, you brought a list along for me as well. I did, yeah. Yeah. want to hear all about it right after this Tom Bernard show. I'm here with my real estate agent, Chris Lindahl. And after seeing what he did for me, I asked if he had something that would help our listeners. Chris, what do you got? We have something very special for KQ listeners. April 16th through the 18th, the Chris Lindahl team is hosting our sellerworkshop.com series, where we're going to teach you how to net between thirty dollars to $60,000 more on your home sale. And the best part is it's absolutely free. So that sounds great, Chris, but what's the catch? Tom, here's what I'll share with you. The number one core value at the Chris Lindahl team is to be generous. I have a teaching degree, and this is my passion to educate homeowners in the Twin Cities 
on how to sell your house the right way so you don't end up leaving tens of thousands of dollars on the table going through the traditional real estate process. So go to sellerworkshop.com for times and locations and to sign up for your free ticket. The seller workshops are happening April 16th through the 18th. Seating is limited and trust me, they sell out fast. Visit sellerworkshop.com or call 763-401-SOLD. Tom here for Sabre Plumbing, Heating, and Air Conditioning. When you call Sabre for service, you'll get a certified technician that's an expert at diagnosing, repairing, and installing heating and air conditioning equipment. Sabre Techs give you the service you need, not the other stuff that you don't need. When you combine that with Sabre's A rating for customer service and the best equipment from Bryant, you get exactly what you need. So make the call to Sabre Plumbing, Heating, and Air Conditioning today. Sabre and Bryant, whatever it takes. Sixties vocals in the world. They are really sixties vocals, aren't they? Oh, Jude's trying to get up on the uh, keyboard now. I'm gonna try to take over the show. Jude's going crazy. Watch. Oh. Oh, it's my watch. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. If, if you your watch face reflects on the ceiling of the wall, he goes berserk. Our dog, Eric, <laughs> becoming notorious for attacking my roll of stamps yesterday. It's all over Facebook and Twitter. Oh no. Unbelievable. I've got to check that out. Eric Rivenis, ladies and gentlemen, the book is called Dirty Doc Ames and the Scandal That Shook Minneapolis. Fascinating, fascinating story about how Minneapolis began and where it is basically today. Uh, a lot of people did not know about the gangsters in Minnesota. Um, uh, they were pretty tight with the politicians, as a matter of fact, and uh, a mayor a lot of people have heard of uh, before. It made a he may have become a vice president of the United States. Yeah. Pretty close to Kid Can, as a matter of fact. Yep. But people, I guess, don't realize that or they don't want to realize it or something. Now, you said you brought a list with you. I want to hear about your list. I did. I, I created a, a list, especially for your show. Um, it's the top 10 most notorious <laughs> crimes and tragedies in Minnesota history. I didn't pull anyone. This is my own, own list that I created myself. So, But right. just, just based on all my my experience and you know minnesota true crime history i thought this would be kind of fun so i can i can go through them from 10 to 1 and you know if you you want to love it okay perfect well for number number 10 i did um there were two fires in minnesota history that were some of the 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 worst fires in american history the great can i ask guess one oh yeah old dutch old dutch was that one of them Old Dutch. No, I haven't heard when of that. When the one. old Dutch building burned to the ground, it was horrible. <laughs> My potato chips. Oh, anyway, no. sorry, go ahead. Well, yeah, this this was probably <laughs> a little bit worse. There were 400 people that, that died in this one. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, nothing, nothing to laugh about. Uh, this is the Great no. Great Hinkley Fire of 1894. Um, oh, yeah. There's a museum. Um, you know, uh, if you go to Hinkley, you'll learn all about that. Um, 418 men, women, and children uh, died. And then in 1918, um, the Cloquet Moose Lake Duluth fire of 1918, mm-hmm. where 453 people uh, were actually were actually killed in that fire. And what caused those fires? Um, the the weather mostly. I, I know with the, the Cloquet mm. Duluth uh, Moose Lake fire, it was um, it was the sparks from a train that that caught some Ooh. some really dry brush, and yeah yeah. But they they both 
you know, just decimated miles and miles and miles, hundreds of miles of um, of uh, forest and and just tore through towns as well. So the people just couldn't get out of the towns in time, and they they perished. Yeah, and in the case of the Hinckley fire, um, I mean, people were trying to outrun the fire. The fire was moving so quickly; oh. it was so hot and. It was so windy that, um, yeah, yeah, it's just absolutely crazy, tragic, tragic events. They were, people talk a lot about the, the Chicago fire of 1871, but more people died in the Hinckley fire and the, and the Cloquet Duluth Moose Lake fires than in the great Chicago fire of 71. So. It's a hell of a start at number 10, I'll tell you that. <laughs> the, the, and yeah, and, and by the way, these are all historical, so I don't include any mm-hmm, modern-day right. crimes that I don't want to, you know. Right. To up- upset right. any families or anything. But um, number nine is the, the murder of Walter Liggett by Kid Can. Mm. We've already talked a little bit about Kid Can, Isidore Blumenfeld, the, the famed Jewish gangster um, in Minneapolis in the 1930s. There was a crusading uh, journalist named Walter Liggett um, who you'd probably, um, you should probably, you'd love this book, uh, Tom. It's called Stop the Presses. It was written by his daughter. And it was all about... Um, uh, Walter Liggett, this crusading uh, newspaper man who thought that uh, Floyd B. Olson was, was manipulating the, the Farmer Labor Party for his own interests, using it, Which he was. Uh, using it as a springboard to a U.S. Senate seat, and, and he wanted national uh, you know, exposure. So, but he was also um, really interested in the corruption that was happening in, in Minneapolis and the, in, the, in the mob. And um, Kid Can, talking too much about Kid Can, and Kid, Kid Can didn't like that. So at first, Kid Can um, uh, beat had, had some of his guys just beat him to a pulp. Um, but Liggett wrote about that and embarrassed Kid Can even further. So on December 9th, 1935, um, in the evening, um, Liggett and his wife Edith and their 10-year-old daughter Marta had, had just come home from the grocery store, and they parked in an alley behind their apartment building. Um, and um, God, the, the, the address, the actual address, just escapes me. But it's in South Minneapolis. And Walter got out of the car first, and another, another vehicle pulled up next to theirs. And from out of the window, someone pointed a Thompson submachine gun. And when the shooting was over, Liggett was dead on the pavement. Um, he was killed by five bullets. Some people, um, um, Mrs. Liggett, identified Kid Can as, <laughs> as being in the car. <laughs> But but despite the fact that she identified him, um, he was never he was never tried. He had an alibi. He said he was down at the barber shop on Hennepin Avenue. Oh sure, absolutely. <laughs> and some people say that uh, Frank 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 Nitty, uh, uh, Al Capone's right hand man, was mm-hmm. was in the car with with Kid Can and had something to do with it Good too. Good God, yeah. amazing. Yep. So what I really like about that is the, the I know some members of that family, but they, they shortened their name to Bloom now. Oh, okay. <laughs> Interesting, huh? <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway. We, we keep bothering uh, Paul McAbee, who wrote the infamous Dillinger, Dillinger Slept Here oh, book yeah. a few years ago. He's, yep, he's like the yep. kid, kid can expert in, in Minnesota, and I keep bothering him to, to write a book because he's got a lot of this information. I'm just Be waiting great. for him to put something together, yeah. Nope. So, so number eight is the the Carol Thompson murder. I don't know if you've you've heard of that one or not. But is that, that was the, a is that the one over in St. Paul? Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. It was in St. Paul. It happened in 1963, and it was mm-hmm. her husband um, hired a hitman to to kill her. So um, there was uh, what was his name again? Uh, 
I was trying to think of her husband's name. It was uh, T. Eugene Thompson. T. Eugene Thompson. There you go. <laughs> Very famous when I was a kid. T. Eugene Thompson. That case, because she went from door to door bleeding, asking for help, and no one would help her. Yeah, she did. Um, she was she was struck with a rubber hose, and then um, he, her killer tried to drown her in the bathtub and tried to stage it mm-hmm. to look like an accident. That didn't work. She fought back. He tried to shoot her. His gun wouldn't fire. So then he, he beat her with the gun and punctured her neck with a, a kitchen knife and stabbed her more than right. 50 times. But besides, <laughs> unbelievably, she still managed to get up and, she, like yeah. you said, started running to the neighbors and got some help. But she was so bloody that nobody even recognized who she was. But Right. Yeah, right, she, exactly. She ended up dying a, a few hours later of her, her wounds. Yeah. And T. Eugene died in prison, didn't he? I think he did, yeah. yeah. I'm yep. pretty sure he did. Man, I remember that as a little kid. I absolutely, that was a very, that case was huge when I was a little kid. It was, yeah. Yep, absolutely. So, so number seven? Yeah, number, number seven, I, I, I chose the, the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Well, I'm sure. You know, I, th- I think everybody knows about that. I mean, was it Gordon Lightfoot, right? Or Gordon Lightfoot. Yeah, yep. yeah, wrote the infamous song, so... That was the loss of a crew of 29 on, on Lake Superior in 1958. So, uh, number six is um, the murder of Kitty Gang by Harry Hayward. I don't know if you've heard of heard of that one or not before. No, I don't know that. I don't. I don't know that one. That was one of the most uh, famous Victorian murders, uh, Victorian era murders in Minneapolis um, during the time of Doc Ames. This was actually happening, and I actually talk about it a little bit in the book. Some of the the characters um, were involved in this in this uh, investigation, but Harry Hayward Harry Hayward was this scoundrel, this degenerate ne'er do well just living off of his his parents teats <laughs> and he was he, he was out every night carousing spending money he didn't have and eventually he he decided he was going to to make some money by putting out a, a life insurance policy on his his girlfriend's on his girlfriend named kitty king and he hired this this idiot named claude blix to, to um to kill her on lake calhoun on a carriage as it was circling um lake calhoun on a cold december night in 1894 so he was it's it's one of these 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 murders that this victorian era murder that's a little bit similar to uh to it it has kind of an hh holmes feel you know the victorian era and yeah someone gets someone gets murdered in this massive trial and eventually he's he's hanged but it was really really sensational during its day so magnificent story yeah exactly so number five is the is the infamous John Dillinger gunfight at the Lincoln Court Apartments in St. Paul. God. So, yeah. So this was this was right near the end of his life. Um, he had just escaped from um, from um, Crown Point Prison in Indiana. The infamous wooden gun that had been snuck into him. They they, they cover that a little bit in the Public Enemies movie with Johnny Depp. Um, that escape that he makes. Sure, if you, right. If you recall right. that one. But yeah, he actually yep. came into St. Paul with his, his girlfriend, Evelyn Frechette, and they they moved into the to the apartment complex, which still stands. Um, at They're called the Lincoln Court Apartments at 95 Lexington Parkway. And they were in apartment 303. And this is probably of all the, the St. Paul gangster tour sites, this is the most famous because this is, you know, sure. the legendary outlaw John Dillinger. 
But they were going under the alias of Mr. and Mrs. Carl T. Hellman, and they basically barricaded themselves inside, kept the shades drawn, sent people away who wanted to make repairs. So the, l the landlady became suspicious, and she dialed up the local Federal Bureau of Investigation office and told them about the, the couple's strange behavior. And so they, they surveyed, sur surveyed it overnight, and, and eventually two um, agents named uh, Coulter and Knowles and a St. Paul police officer showed up in the, uh, in the morning of March 31st. Um, this is 1933 to investigate. So they went into the building, um, they knocked on the door, not realizing who it was that they were about to encounter. Um, and um, gr his, his girlfriend, Evelyn Frechette, answered the, the door. And um, she immediately saw them. <laughs> they were like, the, the agent asked him, I'd like to speak to Mr. Hellman, and she forgot the alias. And she said, oh. Hellman, who? And then <laughs> she slammed the door, <laughs> which, which aroused their Whoops. suspicion even more, right? So yep. yeah, so eventually um, they they busted their way out of the the apartment building, um, shooting their weapons, and um, the agents fired back. But they were able to make their way out. Um, where amazingly, no one was guarding the the apartment's rear entrance. And um, Frechette, uh, his girlfriend Billy Frechette, ran into the nearby garage, pulled out a car. Dillinger just planted himself in the the parking lot with a Tommy gun, just spraying everything around him with bullets. And um, the agents and the officer took positions, fired back, but, um, but Dillinger escaped unharmed. Um, I shouldn't say escaped unharmed. He took a, a bullet in the leg during the gun battle, but they still managed to get, get away and escaped. And a, a year later, he would be gunned down outside the Biograph Theater um, in Chicago. Yeah. Lady in the red dress. Exactly. Good for you. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so number four are, are the Duluth lynchings. Oh, yeah. Was that 1912? Uh, 1920, yeah. 1920? Yeah. Was that late? It was that late, yeah. And that's, that's a, uh, obviously a real tragic. <laughs> that's, that's a tragedy yes. more than anything else where, yeah, um, three young African-American men were, had been accused of raping a white woman in, in Duluth. Um, mm. They were traveling circus workers. And there was no trial or anything like that. I mean, the, there was a giant mob. And, and, and later, I, I talked to the guy who wrote the book, uh, M Michael Fido, who wrote the Duluth lynchings book, um, and did a lot of research on it. And his conclusion was, was that these, these guys were just basically pick, picked randomly out of a lineup, you know? That there was right. zero right. proof, not only zero proof that they raped this young girl, but there was no proof that there was a lot of suggestions that the girl just made it up you know so oh, God. yeah and they were lynched uh, it's a it's a horrible horrible um, isn't that story. amazing that was less than a hundred years ago i know yeah that's scary. not really amazing because we're doing it right now Maybe. people say oh, they accuse someone them, yeah. of exactly. yeah sexual assault and without any evidence whatsoever we ruin lives that's a very true eric i have a question for you you, yes, have, you have the top three coming up right i do yeah is there any way you could stay for the next segment? We could kick off the next segment oh, sure. with the top three. Absolutely. That would be wonderful. It would be about an eight-minute break between the two segments. But if you can do it, I would love to hear three, two, and one. Sounds because good. Because the ones you've delivered so far, the first seven, I'm familiar with some of them. But uh, I'm learning a lot. Oh, I like perfect. to learn things. It's wonderful. <laughs> we'll be back in a short bit. Tom Bernard Show.